Paleo nerds. Two grown men. One plays with dolls. The other draws dinosaurs with crayons. Together they explore the prehistoric past with experts from across the globe. Paleo nerds. Because deep time will blow your mind. Sitakosaurus, you know what a Sitakosaurus is? Nope. Oh man, how about Spell the, it. Uh, Spell it. Anchiornis. Does that mean anything to you, Anchiornis? No, but Ornis sounds like uh, one of those, um, sounds like a horny bird. Right, it is birdie like. Well, both of those species are very important to our guest today, Dave. Well, don't, don't, don't tell me now. I'm just. <laughs> I'm just saying that you didn't do your fucking homework, and I did. Okay, all right. I'm looking forward to our guest today. Yeah, you guys have some history. We do. We Are do. You recording? Well, of course we're recording. Are we? Uh, okay. Well, th this is our Get intro. Well, I like it because it's totally casual, and this is the real us now, Dave. Yeah. Are you recording hey, your hey. Uh, voice memo? No, I am now. Hey Ray, welcome to Paleo Nerds. How you doing? I'm doing really well, Dave. It's a little slightly overcast here in Ketchikan, Alaska, but the sun is coming out again. It's great, man. Yeah, well, I'm in Ojai, California, where it's always 70 degrees year-round, no problem, all the time. We don't have winter. We don't have summer. It's just 70 degrees all the time, and there's nobody here in souped-up or jacked-up autos anywhere. Well, you know, Ketchikan, suppose I've heard two versions. Ketchikan means either the thundering wings of an eagle or stinky fish creek. Stinky. I think our guy is ready to go. Uh, Tom's here. No, Should no, we we'll just we'll just go for it. Just, go. just want to go? All yeah. right, turn on, the, light the fires, kick the yeah. tires, light the fires. Yeah. <laughs> Ray, uh, I want you to meet Tom K, uh, who uh, I met many, 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 many years ago in high school, and he's got a great story about me. Uh, Tom, this is uh, Ray. Ray, this is Tom. Hey, it's great to meet you here in cyberspace, Tom. And yeah, you guys have a long history. You're a paleo guy, but yet this is really kind of prehistoric. We're going back to high school, right? Yeah, absolutely. Very nice to meet you, Ray. A big fan of your artwork for many years. Glad, uh, glad you're pursuing that and making that happen all the way up there in Alaska. Uh, Dave and I shared a homeroom together, so for four years, uh, we got together for 20 minutes a day. He sat right next to me, actually, so I had a very intimate look at the famous <laughs> Mr. Strassman for many years, right? I saw his whole evolution from worm to uh, Tully Monster or something like that, right? <laughs> so, uh, so, uh, right. He, he was always doing very unusual things. And the one thing that really sticks out in my mind that got me, or even got me, is I'm looking over, he's not saying too much. He's got this huge wart on his arm that he's kind of picking at. And it was like about a half inch tall and maybe three quarters of an inch wide. A giant thing growing out of his arm. And I go, Dave, you okay, man? What the heck is that on your arm? You know, he's picking at it and stuff. He goes, chapstick chapstick he made he made a big wart on a chapstick and was wearing it around like a badge of honor all all day so that's the way dave was in high school nobody had any hope for him 
no hope I, at all. Right? <laughs> I was into special effects makeup, and I used to put on a prosthetic beard and go buy beer for my friends when I was 15 years old, because the drinking age was 21 in Illinois. And I would put on this thing and make myself look like I was 30 years old. Wow. So yeah. the die was cast early on. Huh? You, were, you were a different kind of guy. Yeah, I think I went from uh, Tully Monster to Hallucigenia. <laughs> some things behind that, right? That's so su suggestive. Very good. But now, as I understand it, you guys have, you hadn't seen each other for a long time, then weirdly, your paths crossed again. Yeah, so I was listening to a podcast called Paleocast. It's really awesome. They interview uh, paleontologists and scientists, kind of like what we're doing. Uh, they've been doing it for years. And I heard the interview of Tom, and he was talking about his amazing laser scanner, which I want to get into later on on, on the episode here. Uh, and I, at the end, you said, oh, please visit my Facebook page. And I did, and I just wrote a little fan mail saying, I really think your invention is going to revolutionize paleontology, the ability to scan a, a museum collection without having to bring the collection to the nearest hospital and you just bring your little handheld device and find organic material. You wrote me back saying, Dave, it's me. <laughs> we spent four years in high school together. And I went, oh, my goodness. Next thing I know, uh, my son and I are visiting you guys in Wyoming looking for Cretaceous marine fossils. Eureka! Yep, that's exactly how it happens. It was very strange. You know, Dave is quite the famous guy. So I knew that he was uh, doing his whole onstage performance thing for many years. And I actually uh, had uh, messaged him on Facebook, which I'm sure he gets thousands of messages and I got lost in the mix. So I'd never heard back from him. So I was super surprised when, when I got this, this email from him saying, hey, nice job on the podcast. I thought, wow, it took him this long to get back to me. And then I realized he didn't know it was me. He had no idea, no idea. Dave, how could you be looking at his Facebook page and not recognize him? That's what I don't understand. You send him a message, you're looking at pictures of him. What are you, clueless? Try, it's no. 50 years ago. <laughs> Actually, he didn't know because he knows me as, my actual name is Katsiopoulos. All right, so he knows me as Tom Katsiopoulos from high school days. I've since, when I publish and everything and under the, in the business world, the business world knows me as K, K-A-Y-E, and I also publish under that name. So Dave would have, would have been forgiven for not knowing that Tom Thank K is you. the guy that sat next. Thank you. Thank you. But, but what would you describe yourself, Tom, as far as uh, a paleontologist? You are a... I'm a gentleman scientist, right? By the original intent of the word gentleman scientist, you know, back in the day, the scientists were unmotivated politically. They would just go out and find answers to interesting problems. And whatever the answer was, that was it. And they, they did their own research on their own time with their own funding. And that's pretty much what I do. You know, I've been affiliated with a couple of institutions over the years, but uh, mostly I work on my own projects that are involved in both paleontology and astrophysics. And just most recently, I've been doing a little bit in the forensic world. So, uh, you know, things pique my interest. I dive into them. It's kind of the way I've always been. Dave's the same way, you know, if he needed to find out about something about robotics or electronics or anything else, he would just dive in. So in that way, we were very similar. You know, we would just go after something that seemed interesting to us. 
I love that term, gentleman scientist. So you were the paintball king for many, many years. I know that's one of the uh, business uh, ventures that you got into. But did you have uh, an early love of dinosaurs? Were you a fossil freak as a kid there in the Chicago area? Well, in the Chicago area, you couldn't be a fossil. No, guy, there are no right? fossils in Chicago. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I, I remember being completely thrilled to, to be on the beach of uh, Lake Michigan, on the shore of Lake Michigan, and we'd be looking for rocks and cool stuff along the shores. And occasionally, we'd find a crinoid fossil, you know, just a little bit of one in a rock, and it would be so exciting, and we would take it home, and I probably still got it in my collection here somewhere. Quick aside. Crinoids, or more commonly pronounced crinoids, are an ancient fossil animal group that first appeared in the seas of the Middle Cambrian about 300 million years before the dinosaurs. But that was about as close as it got. Even when we went to Wisconsin, we went in the caves in Wisconsin, they said, oh, there's a dinosaur in the ceiling there, and I never could see it. So uh, fossils were always cool, but I had no opportunity to do anything with them, actually. So it wasn't until much later that fossils uh, piqued my interest when I read the book by Bob Bakker, uh, Dinosaur Heresies. And in that book, he said, well, we walked by three brontosaurus skeletons sticking out on a hillside in Wyoming, and nobody ever picked them up because it was too much work. So I said, oh, my God. I said to my, my wife, Carol, I said, honey, there's giant bones sticking out of the ground in Wyoming. We should go get one, right? It wasn't until <laughs> quite a bit later that we found out they were there because they're on public land. And you just can't take them. But that's what started the motivation. FYI, Bob Bucker is an American paleontologist who helped reshape modern theories about dinosaurs by adding support to the theory that some dinosaurs were endothermic or warm-blooded. Bucker and his 1986 landmark book, Dinosaur Heresies, were mentioned in the first Jurassic Park film, and a caricature of him was eaten by a T-Rex in the subsequent film, Jurassic Park Lost World. Wow, so you came to paleontology kind of later in life then, but, and, and Bob Bacher's book is what piqued your interest. Yes, absolutely, because it was all the new theories, you know, about the bird relationship to dinosaurs. That was a new thing. This was in the 80s, and, uh, and we went out and did some fossil hunting in, around Chicago at the Maison Creek. We had a ball, and then we said, well, we should go out there to Wyoming and get one of those bones. And uh, after that first trip, where we had a lot of fun. We said, we should go out with Bob Bacher. It'll be amazing. So uh, we ended up, he was doing pay to digs at that time. So in 93, we went out and met, uh, met, I met Bob and we did a week with him in the field with a bunch of other people. Had an absolutely fantastic time, but I was starting to get up to speed on dinosaur science and a lot of things that Bob was saying didn't make a lot of sense to me. So I started looking into the science a little deeper after that. Like what? Uh, well, uh, <laughs> look, you're, you're one to never steer far from controversy. Well, you know, we were, we were talking, uh, we were talking, he said to me one time, he said, well, I think I know how the hadrosaurs got away from the T-Rex. And I said, really, Bob? He goes, yeah. I said, well, what was it? He said, I was in Africa. He goes, I heard the white rhino bellow. He goes, it really, I could feel it in my chest. I could feel the vibrations in my chest. Maybe the way the hadrosaurs worked is they were able to do a sound blast from their head that would uh, create a focused sound thing and it would stun the Tyrannosaur and that's how they could get away. So, you know, I kind of know about a few things. I said, oh, you're talking about like a focused sound beam like in a whale or a, a dolphin or something like that. He goes, yeah, yeah, I like that. <laughs> Bob, where would be room in the head of a hadrosaur to do that, right? And he, he said, I don't know, I got to look. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so, you know, that was the kind of thing I, I'm, I'm sitting there scratching my head. I'm going, hmm, well, this is a theory that's interesting, you know, from a very famous world-respected guy at that time. So uh, I, I started saying, hmm, I should 
look into these theories a little more. Maybe not all of them make as much sense as I thought they should. So that got me started. Then I met some students that were there that led me to other students. And then that led to a relationship with the Field Museum in the 90s, where I led expeditions bringing out a bunch of students who are now internationally famous, guys like Matt Carano and Darren Croft. And Quick aside, Matthew Carano is a research geologist and curator of the Dinosauria exhibit at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History. And Darren Croft is a PhD who is a paleomammologist and studies the evolution and adaptation of extinct mammals from South America. You started bringing them out to the fossil fields then at that point from the Field Museum, huh? Darren Croft and I did about eight expeditions for the Field Museum over the years. And then uh, after that, I uh, ended up getting affiliated with the Burke in Seattle, Washington. Hey, Tom, was there a particular kind of first fossil find for you as an adult that kind of blew your mind and hooked you? Was there a moment that you remember? Uh, well, you know, the first year we went to Wyoming, uh, we, we went out there with absolutely cold. Have no barely clue what even it was that we were looking for. And I was calling rock clubs and museums and trying to find places to go because we figured out too late that you can't go pick up the stuff on, on public land. So we had to go on private land. Mm. We ended up uh, talking to a 70-year-old woman. She goes, well, yeah, I can show you where to go. Well, she's like 70, right? And we thought, well, she's going to point us down the street and where to go. Well, we show up at her house with no other possibilities. She takes us on a whirlwind four-day tour of three states. <laughs> and we, and we, we saw everything from, you know, uh, Oligocene, mammal fossils. Quick aside, the Oligocene is a geologic epoch of the Paleogene period. That's pretty much the age of mammals after the dinosaurs bit it. And it extends from about 33.9 million to 23 million years before you had your cup of coffee today. To dinosaur, microfossils, to everything. And on the last day, she uh, took us to a place and she said, we haven't found any fossils there in a long time. Well, kind of launch out into the field. My wife hangs back and she went 20 feet into this badlands and she called me up and said, Tom, I found a giant fang. Fang? We didn't even know what a fang was, basically. And she, I said, how big is it? She goes, it's as big as my fist. So <laughs> that got me interested. I ran over there. She ended up finding an entire jaw of a titanothere, about two feet long, and the individual teeth were as big as her fist. So it took us two days to dig that out. But after that, she was hooked. I was hooked. Wow. Very cool. And ever since then, we've been in the field together for the last 30 years. Weren't the titanotheres the largest land mammal to ever live? Not to ever live, but they were the largest in, in that time in the Oligocene. They, they were huge creatures with the giant protuberances on their faces. Exactly, exactly. You know, they, they're sort of distant relatives of the rhino, but they're big, big mammals. You find a lot of bones of them. They're very common to find the bones of the big, the big guys like that out there. You know, big stuff is always fun. And pointy teeth are always fun, too. Yeah. Not, not a bad way to start with a big titanotheer. That's very cool. discoveries and and in particular the laser stimulated fluorescence thing just blows my mind and I wanted to tell you a little story um, I got I was lucky enough to tour the LA County Museum their new dinosaur hall before it opened 
And I was with uh, Luis Chiapes and Kirk Johnson. Quick aside, Luis Chiape is a paleontologist, all-around good guy, and is the current VP of Research and Collections at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County. Kirk Johnson is the director of the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History back in Washington, D.C. Need I say more? And there was this beautiful mosasaur laid out there, Platycarpus from the Cretaceous of Kansas, a marine reptile. And uh, Luis said, here, watch this. And he took a UV light and he shone it on the skeleton. And it just stunned me because suddenly you could see all the skin and it was glowing and every little pore. And then he turned it off and it was gone. And I was like, Luis, that's the most mind-blowing thing I've ever seen. And suddenly, like, the animal was there in front of me. And it's like, and I asked him, are you going to be having this in the display at all? I mean, you got to be able to, like, have, have the public be able to switch this on and off. And sadly, no, it isn't. You can't do that. But that's an amazing thing that you can maybe tell us more about. How do these fossils come to life with uh, lasers and UV light? Backing all the way up to uh, fluorescent minerals, which is kind of the bigger topic beyond fossils, it's been known for a long time that if you take a UV light in, in certain mines and certain places, that certain minerals will glow. The reason for that is a mineral is, has got a, uh, a lattice. It's got a very regular lattice structure. And when that lattice forms, when a mineral forms, if it, if it forms under pure conditions, the lattice will be perfect and it will not fluoresce. But what happens is, as the lattice is forming, it incorporates into the lattice contamination from the groundwater wherever it's growing, and those little spots where the lattice is messed up become luminescent centers, and that's what actually does the fluorescing. Now, the take-home idea here is when you stimulate it with UV, or in our case, when you stimulate it with a laser, you can get very subtle changes in the parts per million level of the contamination in the lattice that will show up as different colors. So very fine differences in the way these minerals grew originally can be seen in the uh, differences in fluorescent color. Now the other take-home idea is unfortunately the color itself does not tell you very much about what the contaminants are in the minerals because different con contaminants can produce the same color. But what it does tell you is that if you have different colors, you have different chemical makeup of the, of the mineral that you're looking at. Okay, does that, does that make sense? So you're looking at contamination in a mineral structure. The contamination okay. is caused by things that get into the mineral when it forms, and that contamination glows different colors depending on what the contamination is. Let me guess, so when organic material in a fossil mineralizes, that contamination goes into different parts of that organic material and causes it to become different colors and you can see it. Correct. So what you get is you get break, when, when an animal dies and you've seen it, it kind of creates a big grease spot around an animal dying in your backyard or something. So as the breakdown products hang out around the original skeleton, those breakdown products will get incorporated into the soil and the minerals and everything that, that come about after the fact. And that's what we see as contamination and glowing under the laser. Now, the difference between a laser and a UV uh, is that a UV light bulb is not very strong, generally speaking. So what I did was incorporate the power of a laser to force more fluorescence out of something that wasn't fluorescing 
enough to be seen with a UV bulb. So that's why we've been able, a lot of these things like Archaeopteryx and all this have, have gone through lots of UV analysis over the years. But when we show up, the laser pulls out more fluorescence than you would get normally with the UV light. And that's why we've been able to make so many discoveries. For instance, the quill on the original feather of Archaeopteryx. So the very first Archaeopteryx ever found was not a skeleton. It was a single feather that named Archaeopteryx. You scanned that famous fossil. You were actually in its presence. I have the DNA from that fossil on me, yes, yes. <laughs> Quick aside, Archaeopteryx is that famous iconic fossil, part bird, part dinosaur, that has feathers and is usually shown as the missing link between your garden sparrow and a 20-foot-tall T-Rex. So it was in the basement of the Berlin Museum. There's nothing more historic than being in the basement of the Berlin Museum by yourself with the world's most iconic fossils sitting on your table. Well, explain what that is. So uh, Archaeopteryx, like I said, was, was named after a feather. It was the first fossil feather ever found, found in 1860. And then about a year and a half later, they found the skeleton, and then that kind of takes center stage. So feather was drawn for the paper in 1860, and they drew a quill on the feather in the, in the drawing. But if you look today, there is no quill on the specimen at all can't see it. So there has always been the question, was there ever a quill? <laughs> right? Did they draw it in there just because it was make-believe? Or did somehow the quill go away over the last 150 years? So that has been an ongoing paleontological mystery. Now, this feather has been UV'd multiple times, but when we showed up with the laser, we were able to see the halo, not the original quill, the halo of the breakdown products on the, where the quill was, and it matched the drawing exactly. Wow. So we were able to recover the original quill. So you think exposure to air for 150 years caused it to? Yeah, that's what you that? think, but that's not what happened. Upon close examination of the fossil, the fossil had been prepared where they had, they had taken an air scribe and they had worked the edge of the, of the feather all the way around. And when they were doing that, they didn't notice the quill and they blew right through the quill. So they overprepared it. They chiseled they it away. They overprepared it. They and tell us, it. why is Archaeopteryx such an important fossil? Well, Archaeopteryx is, the, you know, one of the, well, not, it's not the earliest bird now, but it is the first kind of mix of dinosaur and bird features. It has wings like any pigeon you've ever seen. You know, it's got dinosaur teeth and skull looking thing. It's got a dinosaur tail and the tail's got feathers on it. So, I mean, it's got a great mix of dinosaur and bird characteristics, which makes it just fabulous. Now, there's one more thing about the feather, all right? In order to understand where that feather came from on Archaeopteryx, you need the quill, all right? Because that tells you what type of feather it is. If you have a really heavy, robust quill, it can only be one of the flight feathers or one of the primary coverts. Which but is my research. It's the it's the first one up from the the feathers that are outermost on the wing. The next feathers in from that are the primary coverts. So if you see an outspread wing, the primaries are the longest ones out to the tips, and then the next feather up that shaft is the primary covert. All right. So there's only because it's got a thick quill, it can only be one of those feathers. Now it does not match any of the flight feathers on Archaeopteryx. So it was proposed that it was potentially a primary covert. So I found out that all primary coverts have an S shape to them. 
and the uh, quill on the first Archaeopteryx feather does not. So our conclusion was that the first Archaeopteryx feather that named Archaeopteryx is not from Archaeopteryx. <laughs> Wait, it's a different creature? It's a different animal? Different, well, it's, it's something that looks something like Archaeopteryx, obviously. It's some kind of bird-like dinosaur thing. But uh, we, you know, we haven't seen it yet. There's only been one species of, of thing come out of uh, the Solenhofen limestone over the years, and that's Archaeopteryx and a few of its derivatives. But certainly there was more than that. That's really tantalizing to know that there's other birds to be had there, uh, the early birds. But I think one of the most profound things about uh, Archaeopteryx is that it uh, was discovered and described only one year after Darwin's theory of evolution was published, uh, The Origin of Species, right? Yeah, I think you're right about that. It's 1859. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Whoa! There's the proof right there. So, yeah, it's one of the major, major uh, fossils in, in the world, and you get to spend time alone to, with it. Did, they, did, they, did you have to be heavily vetted to get in there? I mean, this is like a, a treasure of the planet, and you were in the room alone with it. Well, if it was just <laughs> me, I'm sure they wouldn't have let me in alone with it, right? But uh, that's one of the, the reasons why I have a great relationship with my colleague, Dr. Michael Pittman. He's the only guy in Hong Kong that's a dinosaur guy. Uh, you know, I'm the, I'm the, the jet engines on the airplane and he's the wings, right? So, uh, he opens the doors and he has the street cred to get us into places like the Berlin museum. And then, uh, I'm the one that comes in with the technology to make it happen. So, uh, what happened was we got hooked up when, uh, the, the guys from Kansas, who I'm very good friends with David Burnham, uh, had emailed me and said, I've got a, uh, one of my students is going over to China, um, and I want to know if you can set her up with a laser. So I did. That was uh, Amanda Falk. Uh, we set her up with a laser. I showed her how to use it and take pictures. She went over there to, an, to look at a Confucius Ornus specimen. I'm confused. And that is a... Uh, Confucius Ornus is a bird from uh, the Liaoning, China. So it's one of the more common bird fossils that come out of China. And when she came back, she brought pictures of the scales on the foot of Confucius Ornus that nobody had ever seen before. There's literally been thousands of them, but nobody had seen scales on the feet before. Does it have reptilian features or is it pure bird? No, it's more pure bird. More, it looks more like a crow. Yeah, it doesn't have the tail or anything like that. When she came back with, the, with these pictures, SVP was coming up, and she was doing about a poster on something sort of related. So she put the pictures in the poster anyway, and Mike Pittman came along looking at the posters and said, oh, my God, what's that all about? And once he heard the story, he said, well, I have connections in China because I'm hooked into Hong Kong. So the three of us ended up going uh, to uh, China together, and uh, once we got onto those specimens with the laser, everything changed. We started making discoveries left and right. And since then, Mike and I have been around the world twice. Virtually everywhere we go, we, we come back with something that's a paper. <laughs> that's amazing. Well, you when you went to China, you uh, you scanned a lot of the, the bird, the early raptor fossils, and you got a big splash in the world of paleo with uh, your publication on Anchiornis. Anchiornis, is that how it's pronounced? Yeah, Anchiornis. Yeah, Anchiornis is another uh, a bird. There's a lot of specimens. We're like, right. So there's a museum in China called the Tianyu Museum. It's in Shandong, China, so it's kind of in from the coast. 
It was a private collection that a guy built a museum to house, and then he donated the whole thing to the city where he grew up in. Beautiful museum. And there is a collect, he's got three giant buildings, and one of the buildings is not open to the public. And there are literally three stories of feathered dinosaurs in that third building. Uh, we were able to get in there, and we examined all, I think it was 230 specimens of Anchiornis under the laser. Now, even though we have the laser and it makes things fluoresce, not every fossil shows great stuff. So out of 230, we saw about 13 that really showed dramatic evidence of soft tissue preservation. And what did you see? Like, what did you find? We saw everything. The big take home from that trip was of the 13 specimens, we saw the outline of the leg, the wing, the body, the neck. We saw the web inside the wing. We saw where the feathers attached to the skin. Uh, we saw all these things, and we saw enough of the soft tissue preservation in this uh, dinosaur to do a paper on the body outline of Anchiortis, and it's the first actual body outline that's based on data, not on speculation. Of any dinosaur? Of any dinosaur. Wow. So that means the artist who had been dreaming up stuff and f filling things in of their own accord as, you know, artists are want to do. This is almost like you, like me, I'm feeling my, my job is threatened here, but <laughs> uh, you got to read down to the coloration on the beast as well, right? This is a four winged raptor. It's a very cool looking thing, but tell us about the color of it. So the color thing is the melanosome uh, deal. Melanosomes are the pigmentation in skin. Correct. They're little cells, like let's call them little cells, and they contain the melanin pigment. You've probably heard of that. If you're missing the melanin in your face, you've got a little white spot. Uh, so this is the melanin pigment that gets preserved over time. So the melanosomes is actually a whole separate um, line of investigation. The laser itself is not involved in any of that. I see. Okay. So like I say, we see color in the fluorescence, but as I said, the color doesn't relate directly to what made it to the color. So the melanosome switches over to a, a different subject, which is the idea that melanosomes are preserved in the fossils after the fossil goes away. So the uh, originally there was some uh, bold discoveries. There was some controversy about it. Uh, there's still some speculation, you know, which is what's bacteria, what's melanin. And it was hard to sort out because we did not know. Getting a call. It's Christmas. It's the ice cream man. <laughs> it's the ice cream man. I know that, Bill. I'm going to turn it off here. So. Well, I, I guess what's so fascinating is that, you know, I mean, you really have an absolute snapshot of what that creature looked like. And I know that you've worked on the some of the dinosaurs sit Cytacosaurus? Cytacosaurus, yeah. Spell that, please. P-S-I-T-T-A-C-O-S-A-U-R-U-S. -S -S That's easy for you to say. Yeah, no, it actually wasn't that easy for me to say. I'm going to have to work on it. Anyways, it's a Ceratopsian dinosaur. You guys worked on that as well. Once, once again, pretty much complete uh, anatomical survey. You know exactly what the animal looks like. Really amazing stuff. But I guess what I'm curious about with the uh, LSF, uh, the laser stimulated fluorescence, is that you guys then, you, you do this investigation in the back rooms with fossils and this kind of slow technique. 
but also you've adapted it to the field and actually being able to go out into the field and use this on a wider scale or from drones as well? Okay, wait a minute. When I was at your place in Wyoming, you were working on a drone. And remember, I actually helped you with some battery management. You were working on a drone that was going to autonomously scan a grid at night and look for organic material in the Badlands. Well, I shouldn't be telling you this. So you're, you're asking me, is there an autonomous night flying laser scanning hunter killer drone? From science fiction that is now science reality? That can find fossils? Well, I'm telling you. Yes, there is. It no does exist. No way. No uh, way. Well, yes. what's the killer part? Right. I got to retract the killer part. They're already dead, but uh, it's the it's the tone of the thing, right? Hunter killer drone, right? So, so the drone can find fossils. The drone can find the fossils. The drone finds right? fossils at night. Whoa. Yes. So no. You, you know that we use a laser, right? You appreciate the fact that lasers make fossils glow. What's a little less apparent is that you can project a laser over a long distance and it doesn't lose any power, right? Light bulb, you get five feet away, you don't feel the heat anymore. If you have the same power laser five feet away, it still burns a hole in you. So lasers can shine a long distance and keep the light concentrated. So when we were doing experiments in the field, we found out that we can make fossils glow in the field 20, 30 meters away, long way away, and still photograph them with a camera. So it was a logical next step to put the camera in the laser on a drone. The drones are highly autonomous these days. They will go out and fly a pre-programmed path. They have a LIDAR system on it, light enough to, to fly on the drone, and it keeps it so many feet above the ground or so many meters above the ground. And the laser turns into a line and scans a line below the ground as it's mowing the lawn back and forth. And all the while, a low-light video camera is recording that line. Now, when the drone comes back and lands after its quote-unquote mission, we take the video out <laughs> and we process it and we're looking for the specific color of specific fossils that we know are out in the field there somewhere. And of course, you have a, a GPS marker. The video has got GPS recorded with it. And we also have a strobe light on the bottom of the drone that once a second flashes a white light image into the video to show exactly where we are. So we, we see a hit, we go to the next white light and we say, where is it? Oh, it's right there. And then we go out to that spot and we pick up the fossil. So the fossil has got to be exposed at the surface somehow, or at least the edge of a fossil, something actually that the, the drone can see, but it, it glows literally. The drone sees it as a glowing. Yeah, but Ray, when you're walking through, you know, the Badlands fossil hunting, you're only looking for stuff at the surface anyway. Exactly. Right. And when I go fossil hunting, that's why I usually never find anything because my eyes are not <laughs> that well trained. You have to get the search image in your mind's eye. You've got to look for a very diff different shape. But, you know, a lot of times it's like black bones on black rock. You'll never see it. But it sounds like this device can see it. Right. Well, when Tom and Carol took us out near their ranch, we were looking for Eocene stuff. Right. Right. Yeah, and he says, okay, uh, where do you think the fossils are? And we saw this uh, little tiny alluvial fan, and he actually had us spend two, three hours looking for these little tiny rabbit bones, I think is what they were, uh, in order for us to get trained as to what we're looking at, which is distinguished from the rock around it. 
Yeah, exactly. Search image. Like, like Ray said, you have to get a search image in your mind. And the reason why we do that for new people is because if you find a big bone, your search image will never find a small bone anymore after that, right? So we've got to lock the small bone into your brain first so it stays there. And then you can find bigger bones later on and you won't lose the small bone sensory capability. Wow, that's ingenious. So tell me, I'm dying to know, what did you guys find with the drone? <laughs> Titanothere tooth was out there. It was a fragment about as big as your thumbnail, right? And, and it was not apparent from the white light photo what it was that we were looking at, right? So we had to go out there and sort between all the, the different things we saw right there and go, oh, here it is. Look at that. Boom. There we go. So it, it proves the concept. The problem with the drone we have is it doesn't fly long enough to really, you know, do a search of a large area. But what we've done is we've proven the concept with this prototype. And now if we get the right funding, we can get a drone that'll fly for five hours. And you fly me for five hours, I'll find you some interesting stuff out there. So you might be able to actually see a big chunk of a dinosaur that leads into the hillside uh, just from the air. Incredible. Exactly. Wow. So while there's a lot of satellite and airplane stuff going on, what it doesn't give you is that molecular resolution we were talking about. The fluorescence gives you the difference in parts per million levels between one rock and another. And hopefully the one rock is the fossil that you're looking to find. Well, Dave and I went out a couple of years ago. We went to the outer Gravina Island across the way from me here. And there's some beautiful black shale out there. It's, it's black Triassic rock. And we were looking for ichthyosaur bones because some of my paleo uh, friends, my paleontologist friends have found them there. I was along with them. But by God, we looked and looked and looked. And you have to find the shape. And like I said, it's black bone against black rock. If I was walking along with you with a smaller device, not a drone, uh, and you're shining a light at night, could we spot those bones easily? Well, you have to check first. You have, you have to find a piece, right? put it under UV or laser and make sure it fluoresces to start with. Not all of them fluoresce, right? So, so if it's got some fluorescence to start with, then it's a slam dunk. For instance, in the, in the White River Formation, it's the Ligocene in Wyoming, eggshell is extremely rare. I mean, if you go your lifetime and you find a fossil egg, that's amazing. I can go out on any given night and find eggshell fragments. And the trick is to go to the anthills shine the laser on the anthills and eggshell fragments will glow orange whereas nothing else will. So I can go out there on any given night and pick up eggshell fragments off the anthills. Is that because the ants do the fossil hunting for you and they use the eggshell as nest building material? Yes, they bring it to their they bring a lot of things of similar size to their to their anthills. But the problem with eggshells is it looks exactly under white light, normal light eggshells look exactly like a piece of clay. You can, if I, if I hand you two pieces and put two pieces in your hand, I said one of these is egg and one of them is clay, you will not be able to tell them apart. Wow, cool. So have you scanned fish fossils? Yes, we have. And uh, we've, we've done stuff from the Green River in Wyoming. It's at the other end of the state of Wyoming. Uh -huh. And uh, the, the bones show up really nice. The scales will show up because uh, they're not often visible, but we can see scales underneath the bones usually. Uh, and some fish, we have seen eyeballs preserved. And uh, one of the future papers that we're going to do has a variety of eyeballs preserved in a variety of specimens, not just fish. Uh, you know, wow. once you know the pupil size of an eye, you can tell a lot about whether they were night capable, 
you know, you can tell a lot about the acuity. There's a lot of things about the optics of the eye that can be determined from a pupil size. And as you know, if you go to buy fish in the market, if the eye is, is the eye rots first, right? So if, if you see a really lousy looking eye, you know that that's not a very fresh fish. So we can also say how fast the things fossilize by how well the eye is preserved in the fossil. Do you see like a pupil or something? Or what, what are you seeing when you fluoresce it with the eyes? The pupil. Wow. We've seen them in fish. We've seen them in pterosaurs. You know, we've seen them in, uh, in, in some of the Chinese feathered dinosaurs. So we, we've see, we have a nice collection of eyes from different areas around the world now. That must be kind of creepy to suddenly, like, there's a fossil looking back at you. Does that ever, like, send chills down your spine? Uh, yeah, yeah, especially, well, you know, one of the things, like uh, the pterosaurs, right? Pterosaurs, spelled with a P, are flying reptiles that flourished during the Mesozoic era, comprising of the Triassic, Jurassic, and Cretaceous periods, famously known as the Age of Dinosaurs. They were as small as pigeons, and the largest had a wingspan the size of a Cessna. And no, they couldn't hold Fred Flintstone's weight. Do pterosaurs have uh, round pupils, or do they have pupils like a cat's eye or like a lizard? I don't know. You tell me. I have an answer to that question, but I can't give it to you right now. Ah, that one you're going to sit on. <laughs> you have to wait for the paper. So, so that'll, that'll tell you, right? So that's the type of thing, right? You normally, wow. the pterosaurs are drawn with slits for pupils. I've done it. That's, that's just, you know, the, the guess. Well, wait, wait. What's the comparative anatomy that you draw a slit for a pterosaur? Reptiles. Reptile. Most reptiles have slits. Yeah. Why do sheep and goats have this horizontal slit? What is that about? Because they're prey animals. They can see better horizontally. They can't see very good vertically because they get attacked from all sides. Really? Yeah, that's why. Yeah, that's yeah. why. I never knew that. Yeah, so both your eyes are facing forward because you're a predator, Dave. That's why. No, no, I don't, I'm talking about the pupils, not where they're placed in the head. If you go, go read up on it, you'll find out that they have better horizontal vision. They have panoramic horizontal vision. They're like a sheep can see almost completely behind its head. Well, I was wondering about the fish fossils on account of we were talking about shark fossils and that the cartilage and all the skin impressions with sharks are usually not found and you usually only get the teeth. I'm thinking that your technique with LSF might really be pretty extraordinary with some of these Paleozoic sharks in particular that I've been obsessed with, but we're really wondering, like, what are all the soft bits? And maybe this could solve some of that. Uh, we have seen that. I've actually scanned some, some of the baby sharks, you know. They have some of the baby sharks from, I uh, forget what formation it's from. But uh, it does show up to cartilage. And we've seen stuff like brain structures. Uh, we've seen uh, r the rib structure in the, in the cartilage of the shark. And we've, other, in other amphibians and stuff, we've seen things like um, uh, on a salamander, we saw the gills on the salamander. And we saw the body outline and the tail outline of a salamander. But the gills were very interesting. Nobody knew they were there. That was in Las Hoyas, you know, this very famous locality. Las Hoyas in Spain is an early Cretaceous fossil site of a wetland habitat, which includes dinosaurs, amphibians, and exceptionally preserved soft body parts, including coprolites, which is fossil poo. So we see a lot of weird stuff. But, you know, like the world shark, which I know is a favorite of yours. That's where I, that's where uh, I was going. You know, it's a favorite of everybody's. You know, if you know anything about paleo and you look at that thing, you know, that breaks all the rules. Uh, so yeah. uh, I would love to have a good specimen of that somewhere. I'll, I'll get there with a, uh, a laser. I bet you your technique would show us a lot more. So that's super exciting. I, I do have a dumb question, though, before Dave interrupts me. <laughs> so you know about specimens that you want to hook Tom up with of the helicoprion, the buzzsaw shark with the 
Tom, why do you think the helicoprion had evolved a, a buzzsaw down the center of its jaw where every other dentition of any other animal has nothing similar? You know, first of all, they, they usually reconstruct it uh, with, the, with the teeth on the center line, which from an engineer, I'm an engineer, right? So from an engineering standpoint, that's the only thing that makes sense, right? So that's accurate and from an engineering standpoint. But from a developmental standpoint, everything has a left and a right. You know, nobody's got a center tooth anywhere else in, that I'm aware of in, in the world. So prove me wrong. There's a whole group of these prehistoric sharks, the Eugeniodontids. They grew all of their teeth and their blades at the center the center line. And yeah, they kind of vary a little bit as they come out, kind of left, right, but they, they're coming right out of the symphysis. And it's not just helicoprion, it's parahelicoprion, it's edestus. Edestus is, is a scissor tooth shark. Is a scissor tooth, and then there's all these wacky looking ones. It's really mind-blowing stuff, and it's this group of sharks that like, you can see fossils where there were these peripheral teeth, but it's really the central teeth that take off and they realign themselves too. This is, it's blowing my mind. So I'm obsessed on this. Maybe you can help solve some of these things. But wait, how many fossils are there that prove that they're emanating from the synthesis, from the, from the jaw center? Or could they all be anomalies and you're reading them wrong? No, 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 no. There's, there's whole lower jaws of related forms and there's these just beautiful spirals and big central teeth. Um, uh, Agassizodus and... Gesundheit. Yes, excuse me. <laughs> I want to circle back to, did you invent this technique? I mean, the LSF, is that your thing? Do you have the patent on it? Is it my thing? Did I invent it for paleontology? Yes. Did I steal it from another field? Yes. <laughs> so... Yeah, I'm the same way. I invented the ventriloquist puppet coming to life on stage, firing the ventriloquist, leaving the stage, and the puppet coming to life. Am I the first one to do it? No way. But I'm the one that put that particular routine on television and in the public's eye, so that's my piece of art. Right, it's got your stamp on it. Yeah. You're the one. Yeah, like, you know, first guy to create fire was was pretty impressive it's not impressive today but his name was uh, his name was Ugg. <laughs> Ugg, yeah. as an engineer i build a lot of instrumentation so uh i i can build most anything i need and i have quite an extensive laboratory in my basement that in, includes an electron microscope so i can you can bring me something whether it's a meteorite or a fossil and i can tell you what it's made out of wow wow Tom, what is the coolest fossil you've ever found, personally? I've ever found? You know, I don't find, I, I'm not in a place to find great fossils. The places that we go, you know, are like White River Badlands. Every fossil's been known there for the last hundred years. So besides, you know, early days when we found the giant jaw, that was really exciting. Holds a special spot in my heart. Aww. You know, we've never found an articulated dinosaur foot. You know, that would be fantastic. Uh, it hasn't happened. But uh, I would think that the, the coolest things I've ever found really has to be the discoveries in the museum. When suddenly you see the foot pads of Anchiornis no one's ever seen before or the quill of Archaeopteryx. Well, one of the things I was reading up on uh, one of your uh, pages on the website was that you had located the original site uh, that Barnum Brown found the first T-Rex ever. 
Yes, Dynamosaurus, yes. Dynamosaurus? So there's a question. Where was the first T-Rex found? Answer me that, Dave. You're, you're historian, enough of a historian to know. Where's the first T-Rex from? The first T-Rex found? North America. He doesn't know, man. Okay, I, I, Ray. I think I know Barnum Brown found it in Wyoming, right? Well, that's pretty good. Most people say that the first T-Rex came from Montana. Most places will point toward uh, the big, beautiful skeleton that was found by Barnum Brown in Montana. Barnum Brown, commonly referred to as Mr. Bones, was an American paleontologist named after the circus showman P.T. Barnum. He discovered the first documented remains of Tyrannosaurus in 1902, making him one of the most famous fossil hunters working in the early 20th century. Before he did that, um, he was in Wyoming looking for Triceratops stuff, and he ended up finding lower jaws uh, and some uh, neck vertebrae from uh, a new species of dinosaur, and he knew it was a meat eater from the teeth, uh, but he didn't know much more about it, and uh, they named it uh, Dynamosaurus. And then a year or so later, he came up with a giant skeleton, and that one uh, was named Tyrannosaurus. Now, in the paper, I think it was by Osborne, he described the better specimen first, the Tyrannosaurus specimen, and he described Dynamosaurus second, which because it was a more fragmentary skeleton. So in, 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 the way it works is whatever species gets named first becomes the one that sticks. So once they figured out that this one from Wyoming and the one from Montana were the same species, the Tyrannosaurus name stuck. Had it been the other way around, we wouldn't be calling T-Rex T-Rex today. He'd be Dynamosaurus imperiosus. Both of them great names, right? But it was just a, a, a thing of fate. So Dynamosaurus became lost in the history of T-Rex until the 100th anniversary of the naming of, of, uh, of T-Rex. And uh, it was 1905, I think, that the paper was written. So 2005 would have been the 100-year anniversary. And a friend of mine, Brent Breithaupt, called me up. And he said, Tom, I've, I've got Barnum Brown's old notes. He says, and he describes where he found, uh, where he dug up the original Dynamosaurus. He goes, I'd like to try and get a picture of it. So uh, we went out looking for the hole. And sometimes the hole will still be around 100 years later. I, I happen to know the area that, that we were looking in, and I had never seen a hole there, but it was kind of a long shot. But uh, he ended up coming across an interesting bone, and he said, we should go back there tomorrow and take a look at this place. because you've been there before, because we had some bones stacked up on one of the rocks. So we get there, and he shows me a toe bone and he, it was it was about as big as my fist a little bigger and it was in three pieces and I said wow that really looks like a theropod toe bone I said if it is it should be hollow so we opened up the pieces and it wasn't hollow inside so I was a bit confused and, and we took the thing home didn't think much about it so it's sitting on the kitchen table when we were back at the cabin and a friend of mine uh, JP Cavagelli from the Tate Museum happens to stop by in the middle of the night he pops in and says, hey, guys, how you doing? He looks at the bone on the, on the table, and he says, where'd you get the T-Rex toe bone? <laughs> T-Rex toe bone. I go, how do you know? He goes, well, I was just putting one together, a uh, cast at, at the museum. He goes, that's a T-Rex toe bone. I go, it's not hollow. So I grabbed it, and I run over to the, to the sink, and I washed it off. Turns out it was hollow. The center of it was uh, filled in with gravel and hard, looked a lot like bone. So, so I, I looked at Brent. I said, Brent, we've rediscovered the location of the first T-Rex. And he goes, ah, I can't believe that. So we checked the location based on the uh, description in Barnum Brown's notes. It matched up on the money. Are these pieces of the original fossil he didn't collect? He, he dug like a 40-foot wide hole 15 feet into the cliffside, right, looking for it. He recovered the vertebrae and the lower jaws and a few other fragments. 
and a bunch of other pieces of other bone and stuff too that came out. We don't know why, but that was all he got. Now he probably was thinking I'll come back next year and keep digging it, but the next year was the giant one up in Montana that took center stage after that. So it was kind of forgotten. So the first T-Rex actually came from Wyoming, not Montana. Uh, it was lower jaws and vertebrae. So now, first T-Rex, the most historic possible thing in paleontology of great public importance. Ask me where it is. Where's Tom? Where's the, the first T-Rex at? It's actually in the London Museum. So we traded it away for, I, I don't know what the hell we traded it for. We traded some bones back and forth with the British Museum in London, and uh, they have our first T-Rex pieces. That's the Natural History Museum there? Yeah. So uh, we're still waiting for a museum to come up with the proper funding to uh, do an excavation, but money has always been short uh, because, you know, it can't prove that the rest of the thing is there. You know, we have yeah. basically one toe bones proof that it's there. Uh, <laughs> so that's where we're at. But you have a pretty good feeling that Dynamosaurus a.k.a. later to become Tyrannosaurus, there still might be the very first one ever found. The rest of it's there. You're hoping to get it out someday. Sure, you know, but it's, it's, it's a gamble is the problem, you know. Until you really have something laying dead like you just killed it yesterday there, people don't get too excited. So just in case uh, Dave strikes it rich with the uh, this puppeting thing that he's doing. The, Unlikely. Maybe he could be a funder and actually... Go find it. He doesn't have to find it. He can just come see me. Ah, you know where it is. That's right. You dig up the rest of it. That's right. That's right. Hey, Tom, what are some of the great mysteries still out there? What, what, is there any sort of paleo prehistoric project that, you know, you've, you've got maybe an inkling of some sort of uh, technology that might be applied that could help figure something out? Is there something that's been bugging you for years you're wondering about? Well, you know, you know, I do stuff in astrophysics, and if you, if you ask a question about, you know, why do the planets orbit the sun, you have a pretty good answer for that stuff, right? You know, everything that kind of happens in the world of astrophysics has got a theory behind it that matches the facts. Well, all of paleontology is based on the process of fossilization, and we have really no idea how fossilization happens, right? So there's a huge mystery. There's a huge chunk of information missing out of the whole world of paleo that the whole world is riding on. Let's say, how do these fossils get, you know, fossilized, petrified, whatever you want to call it, uh, mineralized? Uh, and the old adage was, oh, it takes millions of years, right? And it's really rare. And that the only thing it could possibly preserve is bones. And there's a lot of, you know, it's just like during the days when they said, you know, dinosaurs had to drag their tails around uh, because they were, they were too long to be able to carry them up in the air. Well, there were trackways all around and none of them had tail drag marks on them, Right. But people completely ignored that fact right? until, until now in the, in the new renaissance of how these dinosaurs are together. Well, the same thing is true like of, of this fossilization process. It takes millions of years is the story. But if you go into some old mine shafts that are 150 years old, some of the logs that are, are holding the mine shaft up are now completely petrified and mineralized. Right. So there you go, right? It only took 100 years or less. It just depends on the proper conditions of mineralization and water and, and the matrix that the dead animal finds itself in. That's the new consideration now. So now that we see that, that soft tissues can be preserved and we see that there's breakdown products that fluoresce and people are detecting them with other chemical techniques, uh, we're now learning much more about the process of fossilization, but we still don't actually know how to make a fossil. So one of the really, really interesting things that I've been involved in is uh, building the first quote unquote fossilizer. <laughs> so we know that it takes uh, heat and pressure 
to make a fossil and to preserve a fossil. So there have been some experiments before I got involved where they were taking uh, biological material, let's say the toe of a lizard, the foot of a lizard or something like that, and they would encapsulate it in a gold foil and they'd seal this gold foil airtight. They would put the gold foil in water and then pressurize the water to you know 5,000 PSI and then they would heat the water to some temperature, uh, you know, three, four, 400 degrees uh, Celsius. And that was supposed to simulate deep burial under temperature and pressure underground. And that would theoretically cause fossilization. So when they tried that, they, they got results. They got a lot of chemical changes because uh, you're obviously pressure cooking this material. The problem was when you opened up the, the gold foil, a lot of oil came out, right? You can run your car on it. So <laughs> that's, that's what happens when you enclose everything. So, uh, I met up with a researcher, his name is Evan Saida, and he met over our Cytacosaurus research in Europe. He came over to see what the hell we we're doing. And he worked with Jakob Vinther, who was doing the whole melanosome thing. He was one of Jakob Vinther's students, and Jakob was the guy that pioneered the melanosomes with the colors. So he started telling me about this pressure cooking stuff that was going on. He goes, I'm trying to look into it, but I don't really know much about the technology. Well, it turns out I'm a pressure temperature guy. That's what I do from, you know, paintball gun is a pressurized instrument. So doing high pressure is second nature to me. So he ended up uh, coming over for a couple of weeks to my lab and my shop, and we ended up building a high pressure chamber. And the funny story is we put a whole lizard into this chamber, packed it with sand, because the idea is that we're actually going to do it in the matrix, right? This was our claim to fame. We're going to put it in the sand like it really is in real life, and we're going to cook it and see what happens. So we, we cooked this lizard, and when we un, uncorked this thing after we were done, vapor came out that smelled bad, and there was absolutely no lizard left. There was a hole in the sand where the lizard used to be. A trace fossil. So we realized, hmm, probably not barking up the right tree here. So what we did is we, we took uh, pieces of the lizard, and we put it in calcium carbonate powder, and then we smashed it in a press to eight tons, and we formed a pill, like an aspirin pill, but it was hard like a rock, and it had the lizard foot trapped in it. Then we pressurized and then cooked that lizard foot, and when we split that tablet open, what we got exactly resembles a fossil. It's impressive. So we were really? able to create the first rock with a fossil in it. And actually the feather, the feathers that we did were virtually indistinguishable from a fossil feather to the point we debated about whether we should get a patent on this thing or not because people could create fake feathers at will now and sell them as fossils. Right, there's that danger that you'd be creating fake fossils, but you actually took a living lizard and turned it into stone, right? I mean- Well, the bones were left, right? So that you could still see the bones, the bones were there. But there were skin impressions around the bones, just like you see in the Chinese feathered dinosaurs. So we published a paper on that. And uh, we're continuing a lot of research on that now. We actually have multiple units. There's one in Hong Kong. Now there's another one here in my lab. And we're building a third one that's also going to compress the tablet while the specimen is, uh, is being cooked. So if there's any voids or anything in there, it's going to get smashed away the same way it would underground. So how can you distinguish between a fake fossil and a real one? Well, that
that is the bleeding edge of research that we're doing right now. So what we're doing is we're taking things like feathers and we're, we're pressure cooking them in the fossilizer and we're comparing that to the real feathers. So now finally we're able to say, okay, this is how we created a fossil in the lab and this is what that fossil actually looks like. Do they overlap? Do they not? And if they do, how much do they overlap? So we are finding differences. Now we're experimenting with different pressures and temperatures and we are getting overlaps in there. Uh, so at some point we're going to be able to nail down exactly what the characteristics were that created this feather preservation, let's say in these Chinese feathered dinosaurs, and we're coming very close to that. That is so cool, Tom. I'd like to be one of the first uh, dealers in the fossilizer, if I could get one here in my town, because, you know, I know people that would like to be a fossil. Do you think there's... there's, <laughs> you think there's I don't think commercial? it's that big, Ray. It's not that big for a human yet. I don't know. Can we do a human? I mean, could... I mean, really, uh, out there, could I, if I wanted to be a fossil and know that my, my remains would be around for another million years, could you help me out, Tom? We could certainly do that. You just have to sell a lot more T-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> Troll Global Industries will look into investing in this then. All right. Yeah, or you need a big fat investor to go with you. Liquid nitrogen is by far your better choice if you want to preserve okay, yourself for a right. time. <laughs> Puppetronics, you guys want to get in on this? Uh, No. Tom, by the way, we could talk to you for hours. There's so many different subjects and topics that, that you are a wealth of information. Um, we're definitely going to have to do this again. No problem. Well, it's been, you know, it's been a great run in paleontology, and I'm really happy to have been part of some of the big revolutions in paleontology. You know, when I got started in paleo in the late 80s, looking into it, you know, the idea of birds and dinosaurs, although Oshman pr proposed it uh, a while back, was just kind of, uh, you know, blooming. And since then, we've seen a lot of revolutions in paleontology over the years, and uh, some of them not without controversy. And, you know, we're very multidisciplinary now. It's very rare to see a, a paleo thing with like one author. It just doesn't happen. And they're crossing a lot of disciplines. You know, if there's chemistry involved, there's taphonomy involved, and there's morphology and, and the bones, you know. So the bones are, are uh, one subset of a much bigger picture now of paleo where they used to be center stage. You've really made some major contributions over the year, Tom. It's really great to meet you, and have, it's really a, a true honor to have you here on the show with us. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. You know, hopefully we'll continue to do a bunch of fun stuff, and we'll come back on the show here with you and, and show you what we've been doing. We'll maybe fly a drone over your house. <laughs> yeah, Tom, and uh, hopefully uh, we can come back out there and have the most amazing snacks. If we don't find fossils, we'll certainly eat well. <laughs> That's right. Come out with me. You go in style in the field, baby. We have ice. Mm. We have <laughs> ice in the field. All right, gentlemen. Uh, well, awesome. Uh, Tom, I want to thank you for your time today, and uh, we will call you again. Great, guys. Thank you so much. Ray's great meeting you. Dave, I don't know if I should be sorry I ever met you, but you're still a wonderful friend, and I appreciate it. <laughs> thank you, buddy. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, Tom. I could just listen to him for hours. Yeah, really fascinating stuff. Man, the guy does so many different things. And what a fascinating guy. You guys have known each other all these years. Amazing. Well, not really. I mean, we, we met when I was in high school. But when we visited his uh, place out in Wyoming, he has this shop-like warehouse with, with milling machines and huge racks of jacketed specimens of stuff that he found in the field. He hasn't even opened yet. 
he had this huge lab of drone flying equipment and you know RC stuff. And the guy is a multi-talented engineer, scientist, and what what an awesome discovery. He's a gearhead kind of guy like you and your puppet puppets and all that. <laughs> yeah, in a way, in a way. Nerd out, yeah, making little things. That's cool. Something must have happened in that homeroom all those years ago. Oh, those years ago. Um, I don't remember. Back in the Pleistocene. That's right. Back in the... Yeah. Wait, if we're in the Anthropogene now, what was... No, Dave. Incorrect again, Dave. The Anthropocene. We're in the Anthropocene. <laughs> What was the 70s called? Far out, man. Because the Anthropocene was only coined in the the last five, ten years, right? It was still the Holocene back then, but now we were layering in the Anthropocene on top of it. Which means means that... we're screwing this place up. Yeah, but the Anthropocene means that clearly... Humanity is making a mark on this planet. Yes, the humanity is really making a mark, and uh, they're still debating it. It's not official yet, but... uh, I think just the sheer layer of plastic that we're laying down and how we change the atmosphere, all that kind of yeah. stuff. It's, yeah. So shall be debated. Yeah. I, I've apologized to my son. Uh, I said, sorry, but us boomers left you a dirty planet and unprepared for a pandemic. So uh, see ya. Bye-bye. I'm going to die. Good luck. See ya. No, that's oh, what I told my son. <laughs> I thought, I thought we were signing off. No. Okay. All right. That sounded like a good sign off to me. So uh, yeah, it was a great episode. All right, buddy. I will talk to you later. And thanks. Right. Uh, this is Dave in Hawaii, California. This is Ray Troll signing off from beautiful Ketchikan, Alaska. Thank you for listening to Paleo Nerds. Make sure to like and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you're listening. If you want to learn more about what you heard today, check out our website, paleonerds.com. You'll find tons of pictures and links, including photographic evidence that today's guests and your hosts have been paleo nerds for a long, long time. Again, that's paleonerds.com. Thanks for listening.